Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. On this episode of the podcast, we have a special guest, Gabriela Santos, Managing Director and Global Market Strategist on the JP Morgan Asset Management Global Market Insights Strategy Team. Gabby is an expert on the global economy and capital markets, and specifically for our conversation today, plays an instrumental role in developing her team's research on Chinese markets. Welcome to Wealthy Behavior. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. So what is your role at at JP Morgan and specifically what is it as it relates to China as well? So I'm a global market strategist within our asset management uh, line of business. And what we do in the team is we do research on the global economy, global markets, and we talk about our views with our clients. And it's all very long term. We're not, you know, providing tactical trading advice. Um, so really, we're very focused on long term themes. Uh, we're a global team. Uh, within the team, I focus a lot on emerging markets, uh, uh, Latin America, but also China and Asia. And really, the focus on China, I think, is important for every single investor, <laughs> given it's the second largest economy, second largest markets. And within the team, I've had the pleasure of working with our colleagues that are based in Shanghai and Hong Kong okay. to get a better understanding what's happening on the ground, but also to be able to translate that to our investors in the U.S. and around the world. What was your career path to get you to this point? So I studied economics in school, and then I started working on the private bank side at a different firm, and they had this great international rotation program, so I worked with them all over the world, in Singapore, uh, in Mexico, in Geneva, then I went back to Singapore for a couple of years, so I've always had that interest in in Asia, Um, and then I decided I wanted to, to come back. Uh, to the U.S. I grew up here. Uh, my friends are here. My family's here. Uh, and uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, that was when I joined. Uh, that was back in 2012. And I joined this team and, and grew up in the team as a research analyst and then a, as a strategist for, at this point, oh my gosh, it's been over a decade. <laughs> Do you enjoy it? I love it. I okay. love it because right. it's there's never a dull day, yep. ever. Right. We're constantly learning, focusing on different things. Uh, our conversations with our clients are challenging. We debate views, risks, opportunities, and especially focusing on emerging markets. There is definitely never, ever, ever a dull day. <laughs> There's always a lot happening, a yeah. lot to unpack. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm very excited to talk to you today to help get our listeners caught up on what's been going on with the Chinese economy and Chinese markets. I think it's an important topic for investors, business owners, and leaders really to be informed about China, maybe separate fact from fiction when it comes to to that part of the world. But perhaps we can start there. Why do you think China is important in in your view? So that's one area of the world where there's a lot of noise and kind of separating the signal from the noise is really important. And, And that's why about three years ago, we launched our guide to China. Um, to exactly do that, focus on the signal. Um, 
I think it's important to focus on China because it is the second largest economy in the world. And it's a very important economy uh, for other economies. And, and especially here, if we think about emerging markets, but also Europe, Japan, to an extent, the US as well as our, at this point, second largest trading partner. So really important to understand what are they doing over there? But also because it's the second largest markets in okay. the world, both fixed income and equities. The size in the indices doesn't reflect that, but it is the second largest markets. How do you measure and, that, Gabby? Um, for equities, uh, market cap of okay. the exchanges. And yep. here um, we're looking at Shanghai, Shenzhen, Hong Kong. Okay. If you put those together and under the umbrella of China, uh, it's the second largest after the U.S. So it's bigger than Japan already. Um, and then in terms of bonds, we look at outstanding uh, debt, yep. and that includes both government and corporate. Got it. So one thing that can be confusing, it's a little bit of a basic point to kickstart this conversation is China's the world's second largest economy, but it's still considered an emerging market. Yeah. So why is that? I get that question a lot. Yes. And there are many different ways to, to put, you know, countries in buckets. Are they emerging? Are they developed? Um, in terms of economics, um, one way to do that is by looking at GDP per capita. So remember that China is the second largest economy in the world, but it has 1.4 billion people, <laughs> a lot more people than we do. Um, and so when you do that math, GDP divided by the number of people, China actually only has a GDP per capita of $10,000. That's considered middle income or emerging markets. It's the same as Brazil, for example. So it's had a huge growth over the last 20 years from a GDP per capita of 1,000 to that 10,000, but it's still not a quote unquote high income country like the US is or Korea is or Japan. Uh, so that's why it's called emerging from an economic standpoint. So, and it sounds like it's not on the cusp of being considered a developed market. So technically it would cross into a high income threshold uh, once it gets closer uh, to $20,000 per head. And if it just keeps growing about uh, 5% a year from here, okay. it would get to that $20,000 per head by the end uh, of this decade. So by, or let's call it beginning of next decade. So early 2030s. Okay. So then you would start to call it high income, but low high income, right? There's a lot of room to go from there. Great. So looking at China for people who want to get caught up, what has happened with their economy, maybe from pre-COVID through now? Because I know they've had a different trajectory than the U.S. What's been going on? So I think we're at a very unique moment in China. You know, for 20 years, we were used to growth being on a steady line in China, right? From early 2000s to 2010, it was a straight line upwards, and it was growing 9 10%. Then from 2010 to 2020, it was a slow deceleration as China had already gotten a little bit more uh, mature. But over the past four years, you've had a lot of volatility in Chinese growth. Uh, you had that high after the, that first uh, containment of COVID in early 2020. That was a year of strong growth. Then you had a decline in 2021. Then you had fast growth. It's been all over the place. And that's very unusual for China. 
And so we're at a very unique moment. And the reasons why first has been the different approach to zero COVID. Uh, China had zero COVID policy, which meant it had a that stop start kind of economy, depending on what was happening uh, with COVID cases. That's since been removed late last year. And so we would call this a uh, end of zero COVID era now and leaving that in the past. But the other reason that China has had this more volatile growth is because it introduced what it calls a new five-year plan. Um, it introduced it in 2021. And every five years, China has a new plan. <laughs> this is the 14th one. Oh, wow. And it's based on where it is and its evolution. It sets new sectors of priority, abandons other sectors. It's all trying to continue that trajectory upwards in GDP per capita. And in 2021, it introduced its new five-year plan um, that proved to be quite disruptive, actually, for large employers and large sectors in China. Okay. So de-emphasizing, de you know, internet companies, app companies, private education companies, trying to pivot away from real estate um, and really focus on new sectors to drive growth. But in the interim, it's been uncertain and it's certainly hit confidence along with the zero COVID policy. Were, were those unintended consequences or was it an intentional slowdown to get to a better point in their view? I think that's a really important point. I think we're at an inflection point in China also where policymakers are not focused on growth at any cost. Okay. It's fo they're focused on the quality of that growth from here on out. And that's because it's China has built up a lot of leverage over the last 20 years. So it wants growth to be sustainable without exacerbating um, the debt burden. It's also because China is at a point where policymakers and the population are focused not just are we growing the pie, but how are we splitting that pie? So there's a lot more focus these days uh, on what they called in, in the new five-year plan, common prosperity, uh, reducing inequality, basically. Um, so it's all aimed at a minimum level of growth to continue on its upward trajectory but much more of a focus on the quality of the growth. And that means that whenever there's a slowdown, the Chinese policymakers don't step on the accelerator the same way they used to. They tolerate a certain slowdown in growth with that long-term goal of better quality growth to come. Are they succeeding? I mean, how does the economy look like to you now? And so I think this year, you know, late October, you started to, you know, hear signs that uh, some of the uh, reforms were coming to an end, uh, this especially related to the internet sector, that policymakers were trying uh, to be a bit more supportive of the private sector. And then late last year, you completely dropped zero COVID policy. So late last year, there was a lot of enthusiasm about the kind of growth we would get this year. And kind of expectations were that China could grow about 6% this year. And then policymakers, they publish at the National People's Congress a growth target or a growth guide for the year. And they publish at a minimum 5%. That means they're happy with 5%. So where are we right now? Um, growth is not tracking that 6% we had been expected. They're tracking much closer to that minimum 5%. 
And the reason is in the first quarter, you, you got a strong rebound and you have had mobility go completely back to normal. The Chinese are flying around the country. They're going out to eat. Traffic's a disaster in Shanghai and Beijing. The pollution's back. So mobility's back. And people are especially spending on travel and leisure. But the disappointment in the second quarter is that they're not spending on other things. So they're not buying furniture or decorations or appliances, electronics. The disappointment is also on the private business side. The confidence is also low and you haven't been seeing investment by the private sector or a big pickup in hiring. So there has definitely been a slowdown in the second quarter and you haven't had a strong response yet from policymakers because they're focused on that quality of growth. And if they can achieve 5%, they're okay with that. Now, the question is for the second half of the year, it needs to pick up a little bit more to be able to accomplish that 5%. So we do expect to hear more um, targeted stepping on the accelerator, not big bazooka, but just a little bit more help to get us there. You said earlier that there's never a dull day or moment (laughs) in China or the emerging markets. And as we're recording this on August 11th, I read that President Biden said that China's Mm -hmm. economy is in trouble. It's a ticking time bomb. Is that campaigning? Is it reality? Is it a little bit of both? I I was surprised to read those comments. I think the words used were perhaps for a domestic audience. And what we do see is when we look at uh, surveys, um, for example, the Pew Research uh, Center does surveys of Americans' views towards China. And at the latest survey they did last year, 82% of Americans said they had an unfavorable view of China. And this is across those who identify as Democrats and Republicans. So it's really one of those only bipartisan issues uh, (laughs) in this country um, just to be tough on China. and, and, And so there's a certain element of that. But there's also an element of um, China having long-term challenges. Uh, We mentioned the leverage uh, problem is one. So that limits how much debt, right? One, especially the corporate sector and the local government can take to fuel growth. Um, Another long-term challenge is demographics. Um, They have an average population age uh, of late 30s. And they started to see their population decline last year. So the demographics isn't helpful. It's not there anymore. Um, Other challenges include very high youth unemployment, over 20%. There's a mismatch between the the job, kind of the the careers people uh, studied for and the jobs that are available. So they're long-term challenges. And I think it's longer term. It just puts more question marks about China's long-term growth and the volatility or the uncertainty around that growth. We think in the long run, next 10, 15 years, when we do our kind of big thoughts, uh, big publication, it's called our long-term capital market assumptions, we put China's average growth rate over the next decade at at 4%. Oh, wow. Okay. So below their target. uh, Their target is just for this year. Five percent okay. is just this year. They know they they'll continue to slow down over time. Got it. Um, so that's a reality. Continued slowdown. The question is just how volatile it'll be, and if they'll be able to get that four percent average over the next decade. So I was going to ask you. You touched on demographics. I've seen uh, or read people comparing China to Japan demographically and related 
a little bit to them facing deflation versus inflation like we are. Could you explain that potential parallel to investors? And do you agree with it? I think it remains to be seen if China becomes Japan in the sense of not growing very much, not having any inflation, having to digest a big real estate and debt bubble that results in that low growth and that low inflation. I think it it remains to be seen. Um, the ch- also additional challenge uh, of China versus Japan is that China is facing these issues um, when it has, we just mentioned that GDP per capita of only $10,000. Um, it's still middle income. So China's getting older, getting indebted before it actually becomes a rich country. In that sense, it's slightly more complicated than the Japan situation. In terms of will China have um, this slow growth, no inflation, lost decades? I think there's a little bit too pes- too much pessimism there. Um, and really, that's because the issue right now in China is one of confidence, right? That's why we're not getting the growth we were expecting. But there's something policymakers can do about that. Uh, and they've started to do so. Um, they've been engaging more the private sector, announcing the end of the investigations and the internet companies, allowing IPOs again, uh, just engaging the private sector more. And through time, if that continues, that can build confidence back, get them hiring, investing. And for households, they have cash. They've doubled their deposits at banks over the last three years, just like we did during the pandemic. So it's about boosting their confidence. And there are ways to do that as well. Um, China's been doing some targeted stimulus towards some of those big ticket items to get households to draw down that bank account and spend on on especially electric vehicles and um, appliances. And the other thing it can do is stabilize the housing market. Um, So relaxing some of its self-imposed restrictions on home purchases, for example. So there are things China can do. In terms of the leverage problem, there are also things China can do that Japan couldn't do because it is a more controlled economy, uh, meaning it can just have the state banks absorb uh, some of that uh, debt as, as losses, or it can absorb in the central government some of the losses of the local government. Conclusion is, China, in our view, will grow more slowly, but I think we've gotten a bit too carried away with the pessimism that it's in a, a deflationary, no growth kind of zone. Right. No, that's an excellent explanation. Thank you. And uh, connected to that, I've read recently things that have surprised me where there's been this viewpoint that China is the number one threat to us economically and otherwise. And, but, you, you know, the flip side to that, the new stuff that I've been reading is that, well, no, it's economic growth has peaked. It's going to be less of a threat to our economic leadership. You know, China is in decline, maybe not as serious decline as as Japan, but it's not it's not a threat to us economically like it has been in the past. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I think we'll continue seeing tensions between China and um, the U.S. and its allies. There's first a very different political model, very different economic model, um, one that China, at least um, the Chinese Communist Party, doesn't intend to change. And if anything, they're becoming more uh, vocal on the global stage. So ultimately, we think what this means is you're starting to get this multipolar world 
where there's the US, there's China, and then countries in between kind of align themselves with, with one block a little bit more than the other. Some try to do both. Um, but I think it's, it's a more fractured world in that sense. Um, in terms of economic competition, I think there are two very specific areas where that competition will occur, which are the two global priority areas, which is the energy transition and semiconductors. And China does dominate the production of of key minerals that are needed for both these things. Um, And it also has that geopolitical conflict with Taiwan, which produces 90% of the cutting edge semiconductors that we all need. Um, So I think that's where the economic competition is centered, is really in these two areas. And that's where we'll continue to hear more um, limits on the kinds of cross-border trade and cross-border investments that take place. Yeah, we had the author of the book, uh, Chip Wars, on earlier this year. and That was my favorite book. (laughs) I can imagine now listening to you. Yeah. Chris Miller, that book was so good. Well, and it just touches on what you said. It educated me and our listeners on the the semiconductor, uh, the uh, the importance of it, and the kind of triangular potential conflict areas between the U.S., China, yes. and, and Taiwan. And that's why there's so much investment happening by the U.S., by Europe, by China on producing semiconductors in house. Um, and and that's a, a key area that, you know, that you have the U.S. Chips Act, you have the EU Chips Act, and China is also prioritizing it in its new five-year plan. That's where the epicenter of, of the tensions. Yep, absolutely. So last question on the economy before uh, uh, sl- uh, flipping over to investments. I know that President Trump and President Biden have levied sanctions on China. Have they hurt their economy? the Chinese economy at all? has Have they had an impact in some of the numbers that we're talking about today? So we have a few, I would say, things going on. Uh, back in 2018, we have the so-called trade war. Um, so there are still tariffs that are imposed on several categories of Chinese goods coming into the U.S. But remember, they never went into the categories like consumer goods. So it's a subset of the kind of imports we get from China, ones that we feel a bit less. In terms of trade patterns, though, I think it's less about the tariffs. It's more about this clear narrative that there is this multipolar world forming and companies reorienting where they produce things. Um, So this idea of producing in China for the Chinese consumer and then the extra production you were doing there, you take it somewhere else. Um, that's closer to where your consumer was. So Vietnam, Thailand, India, Mexico. And what's interesting is if you look at the U.S. trade data, you see that impact already. China is no longer the largest trading partner of the U.S. It's now Mexico. And so you can clearly see that that quote-unquote nearshoring is happening. From the China perspective, uh, the U.S. is no longer its main export destination either. The trade data shows that it's the European Union now. So you can see that's had an impact. Tariffs and just the general uh, trend. In terms of restrictions, um, they've been very, very targeted in terms of what U.S. companies can sell to China, what Chinese companies can invest in in the U.S., and then the latest executive order this week uh, that affects private equity, venture capital, M&A, 
it's very specific um, restrictions uh, on uh, advanced semiconductors, going back to that idea, and companies involved in artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So those are the kind of restrictions. Um, And you can see that um, already starting to impact uh, China's ability to get access to advanced semiconductors. So it's now about four years behind in terms of the technology of the semiconductors it uses. Oh, wow. Okay. So can you explain to our listeners the Chinese stock market? I know they have different share types, Mm -hmm. A, B, H, just a basic primer on investing in Chinese stocks. Sure. So I would say back in the day, if you were a Chinese company, you wanted to go public, you would do that either in the US stock exchange, the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So it's a Chinese company, but it's listed in a US exchange. And those are the ADRs, the American Depository Receipts. And that's the route that your big internet companies took. So I'm not recommending any, but it's the names we know, like Alibaba and Baidu and Tencent. Another way was through the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Those are your so-called H shares. What China is really focused on developing now, though, is its local markets in mainland China, Shanghai and Shenzhen. And those are the so-called A shares. And that's really where uh, the new and upcoming companies are going public. Uh, That's the market that China continues to try to open up for foreign investors. Because if you think about it, if the industries of priority are going public there, they need foreign capital, they need our help uh, for them to grow. And if you think about it from their other perspective, the Chinese investor, they can only invest in those A shares because their capital controls into how much money can get out. So China wants them to buy less property, buy more stocks. And so to do that, really, the growth area more and more is, these, is the A-share market. And I think that's the area of growth in size and over time in representation in indices and portfolios as well. So I know we're not talking recommendations or anything specific, but if I own an emerging markets fund that has got China exposure, or you do, or a listener does, what shares do you think we would own? Which which ones? Probably all of them. All of them. Um, okay. or, I mean. No, I understand. What you're all, all categories. Yep. <laughs> but if you're an institutional investor, like a portfolio manager who has a mutual fund, who has an ETF, they can access all of these. Okay. Um, ADRs, H shares, or A shares. For an individual investor trying to do it on their own, they can really access ADRs and ADR. H shares. It's harder to do that on your own to get the A shares, just to go online and and get those yourself. Sure. So investors, I think, are of two minds when it comes to China. They see an attractive investment opportunity based on its growth potential, you know, big economy, big market, the valuations periodically get attractive, but they also have concerns based on some of what we talked about, the the government, state-controlled economy, that it's a competitive threat with the U.S. How should investors think about investing in China? So I think uh, there's always that values-based discussion, you know, some investors just say, you know what, I don't agree with what's happening. I do not want to invest in China, the end. The one thing I would say about that is it's kind of hard to indirectly not be exposed to the China story. 
for example, if you're buying an MSCI emerging markets kind of ETF or an emerging markets fund, a third of that is going to be China. Um, also hard because American companies after the US, they get the most revenues from China. 11% of revenues of S&P 500 companies come from China. So it's, it's a bit hard to avoid. In terms of actually investing in China, I think it's the understanding that the sizing of it has to be proportional to the kind of volatility you have in that market. So we like to say for the US, a normal correction, right, for the S&P 500 is a sell-off of 10%. And then a bear market is 20%. In China, it's double. A normal sell-off in a given year is 20%. That's normal. Oh wow! A bear market is when you get every few years these new five-year plans, and then you get 30 40% drops. So you, it's hard. The most excited you may be, it's still going to be a 10% allocation to China on the equity side, in our view. In your view. And then the l- last thing I'll say about investing in China is, is not buy everything, Right. Uh, 40% of state-owned enterprises outright, really focusing on private companies that, yes, with the understanding that there's um, more state-directed control in China. And so it's about swimming with the areas of priority. And for China, the areas of focus now is domestic consumption. It's the energy transition and it's business innovation, things like software and automation. How has the Chinese stock market or markets performed recently? So it's had a very, very, very tough go um, since the introduction of the new five-year plan and and all of those regulations of the internet company, the education company, plus zero COVID policy. Um, So you had a big correction. The high was February 2021, um, a correction of 50% um, at its worst. Since then, the market has recovered. There was especially a strong rebound last October to this January, where it rebounded 60% uh, anticipation of the reopening and and recovery. Since then, it's corrected about 20%, um, just given some of the disappointing data. So if you look at year to date, China is down 1%. Um, so it's a pretty big underperformance if you compare um, to the U.S. market or Europe or Japan. Or the 20%. global market. Yeah, or the global market overall. Definitely an underperformance. Exactly. That does leave its valuations cheap, though, is what right. I'll say. Yep. And when, ex- when kind of everyone's gloomy about something, it just needs to get a little less bad. And then you can have another powerful rally in the market or uh, move higher. Sure, absolutely. And so touching on valuation a little bit, I I look at it maybe this way, given the same exact company in China and the US, so it's hypothetical situation, obviously, but the same exact company trading at the same exact valuation, would you consider those two companies equal investment opportunities? Or would you only want to buy the Chinese company if it was at a discount to the US? I I think China has undeniably more risk than the US. So we should always keep that in mind that we we can't compare just the P of a Chinese company with the P of an American company, even if it kind of does the same thing. Um, the U.S. company uh, will have a, a higher P.E. than the Chinese one will, because you need to give it the Chinese one a discount uh, for that uncertainty. The thing is always to compare the normal discount 
versus the current discount. And that's a way to get a, a fair gauge of valuations. So normally, for example, Chinese companies have a discount to the U.S. of about 20%. Right now, it's 40%. So that says there is a lot of uncertainty and bad stuff already discounted. And how do you come up with that? Is that looking kind of apples to apples industry and sector, or is it broad market to broad market? This is looking at a broad market to broad market. And one thing to remember is um, the Chinese market has changed over time. So in a way, it's a bit more similar to the U.S. one in the sense that it has technology, communication services, consumer. It's a more growthy market. Um, But for for ease here, we're doing just the Chinese index versus the S&P 500, MSCI China, S&P 500. Great. I understand. Thank you very much for that. Anything else that you find interesting or compelling that you would like to share about China that uh, we didn't get a chance to chat about? Just that there are exciting stories in China. We mentioned this GDP per capita of $10,000. That means that China has a middle class. It's actually uh, contributes about a quarter of all consumption growth in the entire world. So it's consumer matters and matters a lot. Um, that some numbers are just staggering. For example, um, Europe, Europe, which has some of the leading luxury companies, 40% of their revenue comes from the Chinese consumer. Another staggering statistic, um, Alibaba, the Chinese company, does their singles day promotion every November 11th. Hey, treat yourself. Um, And (laughs) the amount of sales it derives is larger than if we combine uh, Black Friday, Thanksgiving weekend, Cyber Monday, and Prime Day in the U.S. And we just said it's not over. You know, even if you take a modest assumption, there's an expectation that the middle class will grow and consumption will grow faster than that. So very strong consumer story there. Um, The second one is the energy transition. China is the largest electric vehicle market in the world. It's actually competing with both U.S. and European companies in the sales of EVs around the world. It also leads in terms of renewable energy uh, manufacturing, especially solar, as well as battery storage. So there's an interesting story there in in the energy transition. And then lastly, business innovation. So it's no longer consumer tech, internet, apps. That's kind of old new China, the new new China is focused on developed cloud, office software, and robotics and automation. So there are interesting stories happening there and and leading companies in that space. Definitely sounds like it. I'm glad I asked you that last question. (laughs) Thank you very much for your insight today. You're obviously a great expert on China and the developing uh, economies. And I really appreciate your generosity and time. Uh, I think our listeners are going to find it invaluable. So thank you very much, Gabby. Thank you so much for having us on. I really appreciate it. And thanks everybody for for listening. How to Build Your Next Million, Heritage Financial's ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior at heritagefinancial.net 
For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakamis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.